Let me remind you what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He said, I have fought, say it with me, the good fight. What else did he say? I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I'm looking at a room full of keepers of the faith. And I've determined that that's what I am. That's what I'm going to be is a keeper of the faith. And I don't know what happened uh, a number of years ago. Let me get into some of this tonight. But uh, Sarah and I were on staff with my parents, George and Terry Pearsons, my grandparents, Kenneth and Glory Copeland, serving in their ministry. I had been serving on staff there. Man, I graduated high school and I went right to work in the ministry. I prayed about college. I didn't, I didn't have any desire in me for it. All I knew was I was supposed to go to work in the ministry. And I sort of turned Kenneth Copeland Ministries into Kenneth Copeland University. And I just made myself a student of the ministry and worked in a number of different areas. I'd been youth pastoring for probably four years when I met and fell in love with Sarah. And she and I got married. She moved to Texas. We youth pastored together for another couple of years. And I was just like I told you earlier today, brought up in that environment, in that faith environment. And so grateful for it, so thankful for it. A number of years later, she and I stepped out into our own ministry and I, I would never have consciously tried to distance myself from that ministry or that message or my family, but something happened in me, I don't know, two, three years into our own ministry and I just the only way I know to say it is woke back up on the inside. And I, I came to realize and remember, I'm a faith man. <laughs> that is what gave life to me. You know, Jesus said that if, if and unless you abide in the vine, you can't bear fruit. You remember that, right? He said, if the branch does not abide, you know what the word abide means? Stay. If that branch does not stay connected to that vine, it cannot bear fruit, which is why you've never seen a branch laying out in the middle of the road with a bunch of red ripe apples on it. Why? Because that branch does not have the power in and of itself to produce anything. Jesus said, if you want to bear fruit, and if you were to look at that, that's John 15. And he said it over and over and over that you'd bear fruit, that you'd bear fruit, that you'd bear more fruit. My father's glorified when you bear fruit. You can really see what Jesus has on his mind when he's talking to them there is that you and I bear fruit. Why would he be so emphatic about us bearing fruit? It's because fruit is proof. Fruit is proof. You don't walk up to a tree that's got hundreds of apples hanging from the branch and go, I wonder what kind of tree this is. You don't have to wonder, do you? You don't have to take a bark sample. You don't have to take a soil sample. You don't have to send it to a lab, wait six to eight weeks for results. You don't have to do any of that. Why? Because there's fruit and the fruit is the proof. The fruit hanging from the branches is the proof that a seed got sown. At some point, whether you were there to see that seed sown or not, you know fruit hanging from the branch means a seed was sown. It's proof that that seed took root. It's proof that that, that seed sprouted up. It's proof that over time that tree developed and now it's producing something and that fruit is proof. Now, why is Jesus so emphatic about you bearing fruit? Same reason. Fruit in your life is proof. 
Proof that there is a God. Proof that not only he exists, but he's a God of love who will actively involve himself in the lives of people who will call on him and believe in him and stand on his word. All of this is proof. Is this not what the world is asking for? Prove to me there's a God. This is what people have been saying for generation after generation. Prove to me there's a God. God, prove yourself and I'll believe. He's not opposed to proving himself. He just doesn't do it the way they're asking for. He says, oh, I'll give you proof. He's given the world proof. You want to know what the proof is? You. Your life is supposed to be proof evidence that there's a God. And when somebody shakes a fist and says, prove to me there's a God, you say, you see this smile? I love you. That's proof there's a God. Your life becomes proof. Is, is love not the fruit of the spirit? Love coming up out of you is evidence that a seed got sown in you. Come on, are you hearing me tonight? But here's the thing, you cannot take, a branch cannot remove itself from a vine and duct tape itself to another tree and be an effective fruit bearing branch on that tree. And that's what woke up on the inside of me a number of years ago. I wasn't trying to necessarily distance myself or, or I wasn't trying to do my own thing, quote unquote, but, but the Lord caused me to come awake and my eyes came open. He said, hey, hey, listen to me, boy. This is the tree that gave you life. You need to stay a branch on the tree that gave you life. Abide there. Stay. That's what the word abide means. Stay. How many people in here have a dog? Can I see your hand? Leave your hand up if you think your dog is brilliant. You think your dog is just the smartest thing on four legs. You think that your dog is a genius. You want, let me tell you why you think your dog is a genius. You'll be like, watch this, watch this. Sit, stay. Look, he did it. Genius, brilliant, right? I think sometimes God wishes we were half as smart as some of these dogs. What's he saying? Stay, stay. Good Christian. Yes. Daddy loves you. But there is such a tendency in human nature to disconnect from something and check this out over here and then disconnect from that and go check this out over here and then disconnect from that and go check this out over here. Take a lesson from the branch and the vine. The moment you put any distance between that branch and that vine, then all the life is cut off. And if Satan can put distance between you and what's bringing you life, then he can cut off all the life flowing to you, flowing through you. And if he's cut off the life, then there is no fruit. And if there is no fruit, then there is no proof. Stay. Stay a branch on the tree that gave you life. And if you have been a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries, and it's done something for you, and it's brought life to you, if you've seen results and fruit and proof from the word that you've heard, what am I about to tell you? Sit. Stay. 
stay with it. Satan offense is his whole thing. And that's what the word offense literally means. A falling away, a falling. You ever heard of people who have had a falling out? That's what the word means. Offense, a falling away. Two people who used to be close, but something got between them and it was magnified and increased. And now they're no longer close. This is happening sadly in marriages all over the world. Two people who became one, but Satan gets in between them and he can cut off all the life flow that was supposed to be flowing to each other, through each other. Why are we talking about this tonight? I don't know. (laughs) Somebody needs to hear it. Say, that's me. I need to hear this. Stay, stay connected to whatever's bringing you life. And Sarah and I both, we realized it a number of years ago that the word that gave us life is the word of faith. Faith in Jesus, faith in God, faith in his word. That's the word that gave life to us. And we have no business being a branch on somebody else's tree. So this is the word we're going to live. And this is the word we're going to preach. This is what we're going to teach. And we have an assignment to, as as far as we're concerned and as far as we have authority, this word, this life-giving message of walking by faith in the day of grace is not going out on our watch. It's not a passing fad. It wasn't of movement that has come and gone. It is still alive and well in the earth and will be forever and ever till Jesus returns. Amen. Thank you, Lord. You got to be watchful over trying to fit into one camp or another. And Lord, okay. I did an experiment one time with a congregation. And I said, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to think of your favorite grace preacher. Don't, don't say it out loud. You can do this with me tonight if you want to. Who's your favorite grace preacher? I mean, think of one who's had huge impact. People know, maybe. If you want to, you can write it down, keep it in your mind, something like that. Now, now think of your favorite faith preacher. Hmm? Who's your favorite faith preacher? It might be different for different folks. Who's your favorite one? Just don't say, don't say it out loud. You got it? Has everybody got their favorite grace preacher? You got your favorite faith preacher? Okay, listen to me. If you thought of and or wrote down anybody other than Jesus, you're wrong. What happens, listen to me, we start getting into error when we start letting some other man or woman bring definition to a word that only Jesus can. Jesus was and is the greatest grace preacher that's ever been. Amen. Man, he, he introduced this thing and he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. What a, what a statement. What a grace preacher. You want to know who my favorite faith preacher is? Jesus is my favorite faith preacher. And I'm related to some good ones, but he's my favorite. Have faith in God, he said. 
For whoever would say to this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and would not doubt in his heart, but would believe those things that he said, whatever he said would come to pass. Jesus ought to be your favorite grace preacher, favorite faith preacher. And if he is, then all this this stuff, Brother Andrew referred to it earlier today. You got people in this group that think they don't like people in this group and people in this other group that think they don't like this other one. Folks, that's What's the word, Lord? Ah, yes, stupid. (laughs) That's stupid. Folks, we need each other. Do you know how much, quote unquote, faith people need the revelation of the grace of God? That's right. Think about it. Without the grace of God, what's there to have faith in? What's there to have faith for without the grace of God? But grace people, do you realize how much you need faith people? Because you could have all the grace, but without faith, no way to lay hold or touch any of it. We need each other. We need each other. We're nothing without each other. Sarah said it best this one time. She's talking about some of these things. She said, you know what? Grace is is like God setting the table. It's like him putting everything out there on the table. And think about it. What if, what if somebody, uh, what if you invited somebody or several somebodies to dinner and said, come on over, I've made a meal. I want you to eat tonight. Uh, I've prepared, I've worked hard and, and it's all for you. And, and people came in your house and you had worked day, uh, day and night and you prepared this hot meal and it's seven courses and it's beautiful and you've got it all laid out on the table and people come walking into your house and they look at it and they go, wow, this is beautiful. This looks amazing. And you said, well, thank you. Thank you. And they said, but no, listen, this looks awesome. And they start walking around the table going, this, this is amazing. Oh, that looks so good. That looks, oh, look how delicious that looks. Oh, look over here. This is beautiful. Would you look at this? Look how good. Oh, you've worked so hard on this. Wow. And you're going, yeah, thank you. You know, it's all for you. And they stood there and they walked around your table for an hour and a half talking about how good everything looked. And then they got to the end and said, well, thanks so much for having us. Good night. And walked out of your house. You'd be standing there going, uh, what just happened? What just happened? And this is what Sarah said. Grace sets the table. Faith eats. You hear me? Grace sets the table. Faith will sit down and eat every good thing that God has given to you through Jesus. That's how you figure out. That's how you know what grace is. It's any gift that's come from God to you through Jesus. That's what makes it grace. And faith says, that looks good. Thank you. I believe I'll have some. Amen. Are you in Romans 10 yet? I gave you about 15 minutes to find it. We read this earlier this morning. Grace sets the table. Faith does what? Faith eats. In Romans chapter 10, verse 6, it says, The righteousness of faith does what? Speaks. The righteousness of faith speaks. This morning we began talking about the simplicity of faith. 
And one of the first things faith does is it says something. Faith speaks. And there are a lot of people, man, they do not like this message. They think this is ridiculous, that this is heresy, that there's actually, what do you mean, power in your words? You think just by saying something, you can have something or make something happen. Well, let me tell you something. If there's no power in your words, then you are not born again. If there's no power in what we say, then every single one of us are dying and going to hell right now. If there's no power in what you say. But according to the Bible, in Romans chapter 10, verse eight, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Verse nine, that if you confess with your mouth, that's saying something, isn't it? If you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Don't tell me there's no power in your words. That's how you're born again. This is the key to salvation. There is power in your words. Like we said earlier today, when your heart and your mouth get in the same place, it produces power, power enough to wake you up from the dead on the inside and to save you, to make heaven your eternal home and to save you from hell on earth. Now, if there's enough power in your words to do all that, why can't it do something in this physical body? Why can't it produce something in this natural realm? Absolutely it can. Don't tell me that there's no power in your words. This is the way God set it up. You believe it in your heart, you say it with your mouth. The righteousness of faith does what? Speaks. It speaks. It says something. Now this word confess that we see here in verse nine, if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, that word, you look it up, it literally means to say the same thing, to say the same thing as, and this is where people get so messed up in faith. They start they start in and saying this and saying that. They heard a good, good message on the power of your words and they just start saying this and saying everything. But that's not what confess means. Confess means to say the same thing as. In other words, when you confessed Jesus as your Lord, you said the same thing about Jesus that God said about Jesus. God made him Lord and gave him that place. And when you called Jesus Lord, you said the same thing about him that God said about him. And that's what put power in your words. It's not you just saying whatever's on the top of your head. It's you saying what you heard him say. Are you with me tonight? It gets worse. <laughs> you could skip down to verse 17. You remember this. So faith comes how? By hearing and hearing by the word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have not heard the word, then there is no faith present. And if you haven't heard the word from, from the word or the witness of the spirit on the inside of you, then you cannot be in faith concerning anything. It takes having a word from God and saying that word that you heard to be in faith. Confession means to say the same thing as. Let's move on in this tonight. We're talking about the simplicity of faith and how faith speaks, faith talks. Well, let's find out what else faith does. Go to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 
I'm not boring you, am I? You doing okay? Can you hang in there? Second Corinthians chapter four. We talked earlier about uh, earlier today about how a child growing up in a home finds out who they are especially when they ask to do something or go somewhere that they're not allowed to. And mom or dad looks back and says, no, we don't go there. We don't do that. We don't talk like that. You find out there's a difference about you and the house you're growing up in. Well, that's the household of faith. We, you discover that in this little word, we. I want you to notice how many times in 2 Corinthians chapter four alone that this shows up. Read quickly with me, beginning in verse one. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame. It goes on, verse five, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord. Verse seven, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed, yet we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Verse 11, for we, for we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. Verse 13, I like this. And since, oh, come on. Are you kidding me? Try it again. Verse 13, and since. We have the same spirit of faith according to what is written. I believe and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. Verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While... We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Chapter five, verse seven, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, ladies and gentlemen, all you would have to do is hang out in these two chapters for a little bit every single day and you would know exactly who we are. You find out a lot of things about yourself. You find out a lot of things about the life of a born again, spirit filled believer and what makes us different. And one of the big things that makes us different, we see it in chapter five, verse seven, we walk by faith and not by sight. By sight, by feeling, by sense, that's the way the rest of this world around us walks. And when I say walks, I mean, that's their entire decision-making process filters through what I see, what I feel, what I sense. It all goes through that filter. But the dangerous thing is what the scripture says, that there is a way that seems right. You can't spell seems without C, S-E-E, as there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is what? Death. But that's how this world is living. Every decision they're making is motivated entirely by what they can see, what they can feel, what they can sense. And people have their expectation severely limited by their experience. Have you noticed that? that people allow their experience to limit expectation. The scripture tells us in the book of Proverbs chapter three, that if you will trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding, 
That's what we're talking about, sense. How you can understand this naturally, how you see it, the way you see it. If you learn how to get out of your head and into your heart, trust the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding, what would happen? He would direct your path. When you acknowledge him in all your ways, he makes your path smooth. He makes your path straight, but it requires you leaning not to your own understanding, but trusting in him with all your heart. This is what makes us us. This is what will make you, you as a believer. You have made the determination, I walk by faith and not by sight. Now, I think a lot has been taught and said and understood about what it means to walk by faith, but let me give you a demonstration of this. And I hope that this isn't uh, too high or too deep to really grab a hold of tonight, but let me show you what it really means to walk by faith. The first thing you do when you're walking by faith is you take a step. Did I lose you? <laughs> yeah, but what comes next? I'm so glad you asked. What comes after the step that you take? Pay attention. You take another step. Ta-da. <laughs> Folks, don't over complicate, over-spiritualize what this means. Walking by faith means taking a step, taking a step, one step at a time. The scripture, where are we at? We're in 2 Corinthians. Flip back to the book of Romans. I want to show you something quickly. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 is a New Testament snapshot of an Old Testament man. It's about the life of a man named Abraham. And there's so many good things in this chapter, but look at verse 12, talking about Abraham. And it says, we also walk in the steps of the faith, which our, fa our father Abraham had. There's more he says there, but I wanted to bring this part out. We walk in the steps of faith that our father Abraham did. Abraham, who is held up all throughout scripture and will be for all time as the father of faith. That's the example of how to live by faith and how to walk by faith. Have you ever wondered why the spirit of God writing through and preaching through the apostle Paul, trying to communicate what had just happened in and through Jesus, had to go all the way back to this Old Testament guy to try to even put words around what had just happened through Jesus. Isn't that an interesting thought? I think the answer to that is in verse 13. This says, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So what the Spirit of God is saying here, I, I gotta somehow get across to you what Jesus has just done, what Jesus has just accomplished. And to do that, I got to take you all the way back in time to a, to a moment in time when there was nothing between God and his man. There was no law between them. There was only God's word to his man and man's faith in his God. And that was it. That was the extent of the relationship. And that's why the spirit of God is saying, I got to take you back. That's the example. There's no longer anything between you and your God. There's only love between us and his name is Jesus. 
That's why Abraham is our example. All he had, listen to this. All he had was a word from God. That's it. That's all he had. You have to go back to the book of Genesis chapter 12. We won't take time to look at all of it, but this is where God introduced himself to this man named Abraham or Abram at the time. You want to know what the first thing God said to Abram was? We're talking about step one, the simplicity of faith. Faith talks and faith walks. You want to know what God said to this man? He said, get thee out of thy country and away from thy father's house. Ladies and gentlemen, the man was 75 years old. Let's be honest, it was time. It was time. Spread your wings, boy. Fly, little birdie, 75. I don't know how, I'm sure his dad was thrilled that he got that word too. Go, go get out of your father's house. He said, get out of your own country, get out of your father's house to a place that I will show you. The Bible says that Abraham departed at the word of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. What is that? A step. That's it. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know what the end result of this thing was, but he had a word. Faith comes how? By hearing and by hearing what? Word. He had faith to go. Why? Because there was a word that said go. And this is what I think the Lord wants to highlight tonight. If you go back and look at the life of Abraham and everything God said to him, everything God did for him and did through him, he had some, some life-changing conversations with God. You look through the book of Genesis at what God spoke to him. There was a day. There was one day in particular where God just gave him a, a, a list of things that he wanted done, that he wanted changed, a, a really a new way of operating and living that started with, I'm changing your name. You are now Abraham. That's a covenant name. I want people to know you're with me and I'm with you. Abraham. You know what Abraham said? Okay. Abram had worked well for like, I think 90 years at that point, but God said, change it. You know what he said? Okay. We're talking about what faith says. You want to know one of the big things that faith says? You want to have great faith, demonstrate mountain moving faith? Say, okay. When God speaks, respond with, okay. On that same day, he said, I'm changing your name. You're no longer called Abram, you're Abraham. And what did Abram say? Okay. And then he said, and your wife, Sarah, I'm changing her name too, Sarah. What did Abraham say? Okay. Then things got um, interesting. God started talking to this man, and I don't I want to get into too many details on this, but he started talking to them, talking to him about this thing called circumcision. And he said, you are going to be circumcised in the flesh and Ishmael is going to be circumcised in the flesh and every male servant in your house will be circumcised in the flesh and those in your house and those out of your house will be circumcised in the flesh. 
And Abram was like, okay, now say again. What's this? Explain this to me one more time. Because I was good with the name change. You know, all that takes is one visit to the DMV. We can get this changed on the ID. We'll be good to go. Change some paperwork with the government and we're golden. This other thing, the, no. He didn't have that kind of conversation with God at all. You want to know what he said? This is great faith. This is huge faith. These are steps of faith. What did Abraham say? Okay. How would you have liked to have been at staff meeting that day? <laughs> Nine o'clock meeting, everybody's gathered around. He's going over the agenda, the itinerary. Guys, we got to get those sheep uh, pinned back in. I noticed that fence was coming down and the cattle are getting out over there in the east pasture. So you guys, can you take care of that for me? Okay. Uh, we've got some things around the house here and in the, the lands that need to be taken care of. Um, other than that, I think that's it. Oh, wait, no, one more thing. I need to see all the guys immediately following, immediately following service today. Uh, if I could just have all the guys meet me back here in the woodshed and we're going to, uh, circumcisions will take place at 10 a.m. There's probably some servant going, circum what now? Another guy leans over and goes, I, I, I almost called in sick today. I knew I should have. <laughs> Ishmael, 13 years old. If I'm a 13-year-old and dad comes in and starts talking about this stuff, I'm like, I can run faster than you, old man. <laughs> but the Bible tells us that on that day, the very same day, that God spoke to him about all these things. He did it. He did it. He did it. What's he saying? Okay. Okay. Now, I'm not saying it was easy or that there wasn't definitely some challenge to, to this, but what I am showing you is that this is our example of faith. Steps of faith. And the astounding thing to me is that we see the total submission and the agreement from his whole household. And years later, after Isaac was born and he received the child of promise and the Lord spoke to him and said, now you take your only son and put him on the altar as a sacrifice. What did Abraham say? Okay. Folks, this is great faith. This is our example of faith. He said, okay. Now, whether or not he knew or understood what God was saying and doing through that, we can see it so clearly now. God's in covenant with this man. This man is God's open door and access into the earth. And he asked him for his only son because as covenant, as a covenant partner, God knows if my covenant partner is willing to give his only son for me, I am bound by the covenant to be willing to do no less. Now, whether Abraham saw all that or not, didn't need to. What did he have? A word. And what did he do with that word? Stepped on it. That's all he had to stand on was a word. As far as I know, he was not attending a good faith church at the time. I don't think he was supporting any faith ministries. There were none, were there? All he had 
was a word. And yet he treated it as enough to step on. Now you look at what God was able to do with him and what he was able to do through him all the way to, to what God, his entrance into the earth through Isaac, the, what was accomplished in his identity change and, and his covenant with God. Folks, look at it. Where did all that start? It started the day he said, leave home. I want to tell you tonight that if Abraham had not stepped out on that word, there never would have been anything else. It took that step right there. That first step of leaving home. That's a step of faith. Thank you, Lord. Home represents a lot of things for a lot of people. Home can represent, uh, it can represent provision. I mean, shoot, home is the place where you don't know how, but three meals just showed up on a table every single day. Home was the place where there was just clothes in the closet. Home is the place where there was you were provided for. Home was the place where you got to, even if you didn't have a lot of stuff, what you did have, you didn't work for it. That was home. Home was a place of provision. Home was a place of security. Home could be a place of identity. This is my family. This is who I belong to. Home could be a place of seemingly or, or, or so-called comfort. And it's not that there was necessarily something wrong with Abraham's, his father's home. Not that there's necessarily something wrong with the home that you came from. But there was something that God wanted to do and he wanted it to be between him and Abraham. And so what he was saying was here, I need you to leave that and pursue this. Quit seeing that as your source. I want to be your source. That's no longer your place of provision. I want to be the place of provision. That's no longer your place of security. I'm your place of security. I'm your place of comfort. And every, every world-changing thing that God did through that man and through his wife and the nation that was born out of it and the body of Christ that's alive in the earth today that was born out of it started with the instruction to what? Leave home. Just disconnect from that. That's not your source anymore. I am. This is the simplicity of faith. You can see this in the New Testament. Do you have just another moment or two here? Go to the book of Luke chapter 9. This is in Jesus' own ministry. In Luke chapter 9, look at verse 57. It says, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Famous last words. Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Man, I know when my mom and dad... Uh, first started pastoring our church, I was in junior high and the church went from just a handful of people to hundreds like overnight. 
And it grew and it grew and it grew and it was one service, then two services, then three services on a Sunday morning. And it was growing and there was momentum. And I remember in those early days, People would come to mom and dad and to our family and be like, this is our home. This is our place. We're never leaving. We're with you forever. And the first handful of people that tell you that, it's like, wow, that's awesome. That's amazing. Did you hear what they said? They're never leaving. And then you look up and it's like, where'd you go? <laughs> and it finally got to the place where people would come and say, hey, we're with you forever. And you just want to say, stop, stop. Just say anything else, but not that. Why? Because there's a difference between people who talk and people who do. This guy said, Jesus, I'm following you. I'm with you. I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, that sounds great. No, he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Don't you know the whole marketing department of Jesus Christ Evangelistic Association was like, oh, I hate it when he starts giving the foxes and birds speech. It's like, Jesus, we're trying to get people. We're trying to keep people. This guy's wanting to go with us and you talk to him about foxes and birds and no place to sleep. But he's being honest with them. And then he turned to one other in verse 59 and he said, follow me. That you look that up, it literally translates to take the same road I'm taking. Walk this road with me. Faith talks and faith walks. He said, follow me. And this guy said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Do you notice what he said there? Me first. Let me first. Jesus is extending to him this two word invitation that is the greatest thing that's ever fallen on human ears. Follow me. Now, all of us since then have heard that, but not everybody living at the time of his earthly ministry got that invitation out of his mouth. This was rare. This was valuable. This was precious. And this guy said, let me first, let me first go. And I want you to notice where he wants to go. Bury my father. And Jesus said to him in verse 60, yeah, I understand. You go take care of that. Family comes first. No, bad translation. What did Jesus say? Verse 60, let the dead bury their own dead. You go. And the implication is now go now and preach the kingdom of God. When you look this up, you start doing a little bit of study. I found something that somewhere it's, it's buried in the language here, but it's the idea that this guy's father has not just died, nor was he about to. What he's saying is, let me go wait until he does. Folks, if, the, if there is something that you still have to do first before you're ready to commit to walking by faith and following Jesus, then you're not ready. And it gets serious. He said, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first. There it is again. Me first. Me first. If you know anything at all about Jesus and about this word, then you know it is not me first. It is kingdom first. He said, let me first. Now notice where he's wanting to go. Go and bid them farewell who are where? At my house. I want you to notice that both of these guys 
Where are they being pulled back to? Home. That place of provision, that place of security, that place of identity, and that place of so-called or seeming comfort. Both of them. I want to go home to my dad. Let me first go bid them farewell. And Jesus said in verse 62, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. That word fit means useful. In other words, Jesus is saying to these guys, I love you. I've called you, but I can't use you. Not in this shape that you're in. Not as long as you're trying to go back home. Not as long as you're trying to go back instead of going forward in faith. Are these guys loved? Sure, they're loved. They got human blood running through their veins. You know they're loved. Are they called? Is there a call of God on their lives? Yeah, it just came out of Jesus' mouth. Follow me. Walk with me. And they said, okay, wait, wait, wait. Sure, I'll do that, but let me first go home. And Jesus said, if you put your hand to this plow and you start looking back at home, I've loved you, I've called you, but I cannot use you. Now, why would anybody put their hand to the plow and start looking back? Because plowing's hard. It's rough and it's dirty. And you look, you stand back and look at a field and you think, man, I'm going to plant some seeds out there. I'm going to have a, a huge harvest. I'm going to be rich. But you forget that plowing is just as much a part of the planting and harvesting process as sowing the seed is. The ground has to be plowed. And Jesus said, when you start that, and you get to looking back, I can't use you. What I'm trying to get you to see is that there is a pull that, that comes from this place called home. This, this pull back to what's comfortable, this pull back to where you were secure, this pull back to where provision was, was not a, a risk. There was a man... In the book of Mark chapter 10, you can look there with me. I won't take time to read the whole thing. I've kept you a while tonight, but this is significant. In Mark chapter 10, there was a man that uh, came to Jesus in verse 17. It says, now he was, as he was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him. And asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? You put this together with some of the other accounts. And this guy came running to Jesus. Get the picture here. Jesus is walking in this direction. He's headed out of town. He's on the road. This guy comes running, chases him down. Can you get the sense of urgency? The, the, this almost emergency that this guy has? He is running to Jesus. Just almost slides in on his knees at the feet of Jesus. And other, other accounts of this say that he said, good teacher, what good thing do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked back at him and his response puzzled me for a long time. Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. And I didn't understand that for a long time, but I see it more clearly now. This guy came to Jesus, called him good teacher and then turned right around and said, what good thing do I have to do to inherit eternal life? 
What he did that was wrong, he came to the right place and he's got the right question. He's in search for, of eternal life and he came to the right place to find it. But what he did that was wrong was he put the goodness of Jesus teaching on the same level as the goodness of him doing something to get something from him. And that's why Jesus had to turn around and say, why are you calling me good? We need to address your concept of what's actually good. And there's a flaw in his question. Do you see it? What do I have to do to inherit? That's a strange question, isn't it? Let me ask a quick question. Does anybody in here have a rich grandpa? Just raise your hand if you do. Anybody have a rich grandpa? I'll tell you what, man, if you don't have one, you got to get one. They are awesome. They are amazing. I got me one and it's one of the best things I've ever had. I got one that has been such a blessing to me and to my wife and to my kids, our entire family. I'm telling you, if you don't, if you don't have one, you got to find one because they are amazing. I got a rich one and I'm, I'm believing with him and standing on the word with him. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Believe you me, I am living right now with a healthy revelation of inheritance. <laughs> Excited about inheritance. And my, my grandfather, my grandmother have actually already started. They ain't waiting. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> but what is inheritance? It's something that belongs to you that somebody else worked for. You didn't work for it. So now you can see the flaw in his question. What good thing do I have to do to inherit? I wonder if that's kind of a window into the relationship he had with his own father. Because we know from other places in scripture, this guy's a rich guy. He's a young guy. How does a young person come across money like that at that time in life, that young? Inheritance. And I don't know if maybe his relationship with his father was, you better do this if you want any of what I've got. That was his concept of inheritance. What good thing do I have to do? And even though he's got some stuff, he's got some money, he's got some things, still there's this eternal life-shaped hole on the inside. And he's come to the right place to find it. What do I have to do to inherit? And Jesus said, what's your concept of good? Inheritance isn't about what you work for. That's why this inheritance is such a good picture of what we have in Jesus. It's what belongs to us that he worked for. Amen. Salvation is our inheritance. It belongs to us because you worked for it. No, because he did. But because this guy came to him based on his works, Jesus responded to him and said, you know, the law, he said, he listed several of the commandments for him. And this guy said back to him, I've done all of this from my youth. Jesus, verse 21, looking at him, loved him. I love that. So whatever's about to come out of Jesus' mouth is out of love. He said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come take up the cross and, and what? Take the road that I'm taking. Walk with me. He's saying, walk with me. In verse 22, though, it says he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Get the picture of what happened. Jesus is on the road. He's headed this way. This guy comes running, meets him on the road. They have this conversation. 
Jesus looks at him. He loves him. And here comes this two-word invitation out of the mouth of Jesus. Follow me. And this guy heard it. And he got sad. And what did he do? Walked, not with him, away. Walked away. I wish for his sake that he had hung around for like five minutes. You want to know what he would have found out? This whole thing so captured the attention of the disciples. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at these words. And Jesus answered and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches. See, this goes back to this guy's misconception of what's actually good. He put the goodness of following Jesus on the same level as the goodness of having some stuff. And that misconception caused him to walk away sad. And Jesus said, how hard it is to get those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to, uh, to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men, it's impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. You want to know what Jesus was referring to when he said all things were possible? He was saying you can be rich and saved. When he was talking about all things being possible, he was talking about you being saved, trusting God and being a rich person. Somebody say it's possible. Now notice what Peter said in verse 28. He said to him, see, we have left all and followed you. See, Peter was confused by this whole thing. He watched this whole thing go down. And I guarantee you, he, he saw that young guy come running. He recognized that same hunger. He recognized that same urgency, that desperation, if you will. And Peter's going, man, he's come to the right place. And he watched the whole thing go down. He watched Jesus love on him. He watched Jesus give to that young man the same invitation that Jesus had given to Peter and to the other disciples. Same invitation. What was it? Follow me. Walk. Just, just walk this way. Faith talks and faith. And I guarantee you, Peter's going, thinking to himself, we got a new one. We got a new member of the crew. And I guarantee you, he was shocked to see this young guy walk away. And Peter said, man, we left all and followed you. You go back to when Jesus met Peter. He said that those same words, follow me to the other disciples, follow me. You know what the Bible says they did? They left their father in the boat. What are they doing? Leaving home leaving home, leaving their father. And not only did they leave their father, it says they left their nets. These guys are fishermen, not as a hobby, as a way of life, as a way of income. Can you imagine if Jesus had said, follow me? And they said, uh, okay. And Jesus turns around and these guys are pulling nets behind him as they walk with him. He said, guys, what's with the nets? Said, well, you know, in case this whole fisher of men thing doesn't work out, We've got this to fall back on. 
And that's what a net is. If you've ever been to a circus or something like that, and you see those people, those guys who walk all the way up four stories onto that tightrope in their tight pants, and they're walking across. And oh, it's scary, right? I mean, they're so high up, and it's so dangerous, and it's so hard, until you look down below them, and oh, look, there's a net. So really, how much risk is involved in this? He falls, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? He's going to get a runner in his tights. He's going to stand up. He's going to say, you know, thank you. We'll try again. No, no risk at all. It gets really interesting, though, when you take the net away. Now, all of a sudden, there's risk involved. That's why it's, it's a lot more engaging when you see some of these guys who stretch out a cable across the Grand Canyon and get out there without a net or between two skyscrapers, downtown Chicago, no net. These guys left the net. What does that net represent? What does home represent? Something to fall back on. That place of provision, that place of security, that place of identity. And Jesus is saying, let me be your net. I want to be the net. Launch out into the deep. I want to be the net. And guess what? You are going to fall, but I'm going to be the one that catches you. It's not going to be your bank account that catches you. It's not going to be your investments that catch you. It's not going to be your own family. Let me be the one to catch you and to pick you back up and to prop you up and to hold you up and to keep you walking one step at a time. And Peter said, man, we've left everything. We left all and followed you. And this is where we'll end tonight. Somebody say, thank God. (laughs) Jesus, in verse 29, answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands. Check this out for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold, a hundredfold, a hundredfold. When do you get that? Now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. If this dude had hung around for five minutes, he would have found out that leaving something is not losing something. Leaving something for Jesus' sake in the Gospels is not losing it, it's sowing it. And we talk a lot about the hundredfold return and sow in this offering, and you can have a hundredfold return. I'm not saying I understand everything there is to know about the hundredfold, but I will tell you this according to Jesus, it belongs to a select group of people, those who are willing to walk away from anyone or anything for his sake in the Gospels. That's who the hundredfold belongs to. I'm telling you, Sarah and I are, are, are living proof of this. When we were serving on staff there at my grandparents' ministry, I honestly just thought that's where I'm going to be. I'll just be here for life. I mean, when Papa's the man, 
there's a certain level of job security that you enjoy. <laughs> but the night before Thanksgiving, 2009, the Lord starts talking to Sarah and to me as we laid in bed. That was 10 years ago this year. And we started dreaming out loud about having our own ministry, having our own church, having our own people. And for some reason, we started talking out loud about living in Colorado, up in the mountains. Lord, would you do that for us? Would you do that for us? And we started praying about it. And months and months later, we went and met with my grandparents, had them pray over it with us. What are we doing? Taking steps. Just a step. We said, this is what the Lord's telling us. We submit it to you. Pray over it with us. They said, this seems good. It seems like God. They prayed over us. Months after that, we stepped out into our own ministry. And our first day in our own ministry, we were driving I-70 through the mountains of Colorado looking. Where's our place? Where's our place? Where is it? It's got to be here somewhere. It's got to be here somewhere. That was so real on the, in the inside of us. And for years, we were back and forth, Texas to Colorado, Texas to Colorado, looking. It's got to be here somewhere. It's got to be here somewhere. It was a dream that was on the inside of us. And our, our, in the meantime, uh, right as we stepped into our own ministry, our, our little boy, Justice, he was three months old. So that's what you do, right? Have a baby, quit your job. <laughs> but what were we doing? I was getting out of my father's house. Not because there was something wrong with my father's house. It's a great house. But what was the Lord saying? I want to be your place of security. I want to be your place of provision. I want to be your place of identity. People used to ask me now, what's your last name? Pearsons. How are you related to the Copelands? And, oh, that's my grandfather. And I would tell them, Copeland's my maiden name. <laughs> and the number of people that would look back at me and be like, oh, okay. And I, I, I will tell you, and I will be honest with you, and I, I have no confusion in me about it whatsoever. That name has done wonderful things for me in my life. It's put me in places that I don't believe I'd be in otherwise. But all the more reason to take that step. Because I don't care if Oprah is your aunt or the Queen of England is your grandma. There is nothing that they can do for you like what your heavenly father can do for you. The name Copeland, in compared to the identity that I have in the Lord Jesus, it far outweighs it. So what's he saying? Come on, take a step, take a step. And we thought any day now we'll be in Colorado. And you know what? We were right, except that it was 10 years later. So like 3,000 and something days. But what were we doing along that, that whole time? Step. Yeah, but then what? Another step. Okay, I get it. But then what? This is where it gets tricky. Another step. <laughs> 10 years of just walking. Just one step after another. And today we are living in our dream. What the Lord's doing, it's beyond all that we could ask or think. He's put us in a beautiful place around beautiful people. And people are coming from other places to be a part of it. He's doing it. How did we get there? Stepping. Because faith talks and faith walks. One step at a time. How in the world are you going to get from where you are to where God's called you to be? Walking. Step at a time. Now you may be saying, look, I'm old. I'm, I'm, 
I'm not in my father's house anymore. Well, first of all, Abraham was 75. It's not too old to get started in something new. Second of all, secondly, Jesus will help you identify what you have more faith in than him. He'll help you find it. If you ask him, open my eyes, show me what I'm trusting more than I'm trusting you. Show me what I've been using as a net. He'll show you. And then he'll show you by asking you, leave it for my sake and the gospels. And I'm living proof that the hundredfold return is on the other side. Amen. Stand up on your feet with me tonight. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the Legacy TV podcast. We hope you enjoyed this. And if you'd like to hear more of Jeremy and Sarah, subscribe to this podcast and download the Legacy Studios app. From there, you'll have access to the Legacy Television broadcast, the Legacy Letter magazine, and so much more. You can also visit pearsonsministries.com to contact us directly and find out how you can get involved with everything that's happening here at Legacy Studios. Be blessed today. We love you. Remember, you are always welcome here in the House of Faith.